Hi, this is journalism.co.uk podcast. My name is Marcela Kunova. Why should journalists use robots to talk to their audiences? Is it just a gimmick, an impersonal interaction? Or maybe is there something more to it? Is it possible that when people are talking to bots, they can find themselves developing a relationship based on trust and even accept views very different from their own because it doesn't feel like having an argument with another human. To find out, I spoke to Emily Withrow, the director of Bot Studio at Quartz. Emily tells us why bots, or conversational interfaces to use the proper word, are on the rise. Conversational interfaces are here to stay. You know, we spent a really long part of sort of computing history using graphical user interfaces, meaning screens, you know, things that you touch. Um, and in the past few years, what we've really seen is that conversational user interfaces, so like talking to machines, talking to software, um, the capabilities have really, really ramped up. And so that is becoming a new way that we interact with machines, with information, with publications, with brands. And so courts thought it was really important to get out ahead of that, to get in front of it, to understand more about how people interact with machines, how they behave around machines, and to explore what we might be able to do with journalism in that space. So how would people consume the news differently? How would they interact with the news differently? How would we produce news differently for those people? So that's what we've been exploring for the past year and a half. But how do we even start talking to a bot? I mean, I don't know about you, but I always feel a bit silly taping a full question on Google or addressing a smart speaker as Alexa. Turns out I'm not the only one. We have some really bad habits because if you think about where you most encounter bots, it's like when you call the phone company or when you call an airline and you encounter these phone trees and you have to say representative really loudly to be able to talk to a person. Um, and it's really sort of this limited interaction and they force you down these specific paths. And so now that computers have really caught up and you can use natural language to express yourself, we're actually seeing a lot of really bad habits kind of left over from those first interactions where people will like bark a single word over and over again. And then the more sort of charitable view of that is that people, and this is really quite lovely, people um, try almost to like talk robot to robots, almost like they're trying to speak a foreign language, you know? So my dad, for example, the first time he tried to say something, he said something like score, baseball, Braves, Thursday. Right. It wasn't like, hey, what was the score in the Braves game on Thursday? It was like this very weird, choppy thing, almost like something that you would type into a Google search bar. So I think that's one of the things that we're seeing is people have to get used to talking to machines and understand what that's like. So, okay, that's might have a bit of a hard time. But Emily says that bots are used by a range of people of all ages and from all over the world, not just the young people, which is a common misconception. It seems bots are better at human psychology. I'm not even kidding. Bots are often better at talking to people than human journalists. So what we're actually seeing is amazing engagement and retention that is 
oftentimes unparalleled on other platforms. And there are a couple of reasons for this. One is the bot, you don't have the same experience as every other person who's talking to it. We believe that emotional intelligence is just as important as artificial intelligence. And what we find is that by employing a few principles from psychology, uh, by taking our users into account, by acknowledging them, by validating them, by asking for their opinions, for their reactions, that they are more engaged in the stories and they actually go deeper into the stories and are more likely to interact with viewpoints that are not their own. And that is a piece that I'm personally really interested in. If we can use this technology to get people to interact with difficult subjects, with people who are not of their same mindset, to take a really complex issue. We know that most people shut out that point of view immediately. Um, but what we have started to see is if we present something that is really complex and allowing people to express their point of view first, and then encounter that opposite point of view, then they're more likely to go forward and interact with it. So I'll give a really easy example um, because we began this experiment with entertainment. So we did an experiment to see if we could get people further along in the experience by shifting the order. So we took a television show um, that we thought was a real mixed bag and you know had some good points, it had some bad points. And so we began the, um, the experience that week by saying, hey, what did you think of this week's episode? And there were a couple options there and you could say like, oh, so great, or I didn't really like it. <laughs> um, and if you said, I didn't really like it, we flipped the order and so we said, yeah, you know, there were these major problems with the episode and we detailed those. And then we had, the only part that was really different was we then had the transition sentence that said, but there were some bright spots as well. And then we went on and talked about all of the things that we thought were good about the episode. Same thing and the opposite. If you said, oh, this was a great episode, we say here are all the things we thought were great, but there were some, there were some problems with the episode as well. And we presented those, um, those counterpoints. And what we found was that people would go deeper into their opposite point of view if they had their point of view sort of stacked up top, which is something that we know works from psychology, right? If, if you're having an argument with someone and you sort of say what the person's argument is back to them first, they're more likely to then listen to what you have to say. I'm really interested in, in going forward and testing this with, um, with you know, geopolitics or with issues that there are real arguments to be had and to see if we can get people to engage with opinions that are not their own. Okay, so let's slow down. Of course, everything a robot says is programmed and written by a human reporter. But the interaction allows journalists to adjust the content to their readers, almost tailor it to their audience's level of expertise. Because when it talk to a machine, you can ask it more questions about the content or if you understand it just fine, you can simply let it talk to you. So is this a new avenue for even more personalization? Yeah, you know, I think personalization has a real, for me at least, sort of a negative connotation because when I hear personalization, um, it's almost always that I'm having to do the work Right. You go and you fill out a, a form and you say, my interests are travel and leisure and 
cryptocurrency or whatever. Um, and what we're doing is trying to be more intelligent about that on the back end. And so um, doing that in a way that is seamless, so it so it feels like it's perfect for you, but you're not having to do um, any of that explicit sort of telling or work on your end. Okay, so what's data behind it? How do you bots help Quartz with their editorial strategy? We see about seven times the industry average in terms of retention. So retention, we look at two primary metrics. Um, one is retention, so that's use over time. That's like the long game, right? So week after week after week, how can we um, pull people along? Um, and then we also look at uh, what we call completion rates. It's a new space that we're just making up words to describe it. Uh, we call them completion rates, and this is how many people who start the experience finish it all the way to the end? Um, and we see completion rates often that are up into the 90s. And so, and these are three to five minute experiences. Um, and so that is really compelling for us because it means that people are sticking with us both on that deep engagement level um, for each individual story, but then they're also sticking with us over time. So they're coming back to us again and again and looking for more and what we have. Um, we don't serve what I would call like an all-you-can-eat buffet of content. <laughs> we, we, are, we dole it out, it's like a tasting menu, we dole it out over time. Um, and so we think that that helps as well. People keep coming back, they're curious about what our next story is gonna be. So are bots better at connecting with the audience than human journalists? That is exactly what people say, that they are more willing to try strange things, to ask questions that they might feel embarrassed asking in a more public setting. There is this sort of intimate private feel to the interaction and they really do extend a piece of their humanity to the bot, right? Because they really give this personality to the bot. They interpret it that way. People really are forming emotional connections and they would come back and report on them themselves and their lives. People send us photos of their dogs and all kinds of stuff. Um, and they know that they're just sending it to the bot and they know that it's a machine, but they can have that connection. And so really what's lovely is, you know, the same part of us that allows us to be jerks online also allows us to be really vulnerable online. And that is a huge, I think, opportunity for news outlets who are looking to connect. One of the biggest mistakes that we've seen in this space is to think of this as content delivery. I've heard that phrase a lot that this is an automated content delivery system. That's what people call it. To me, it's not about content delivery. It's about audience engagement. What are the risks of trusting a machine? So one of the risks, of course, in this space is privacy. People think of this as a private space, but it's not a private space. Every time you send a message to anyone on Facebook or Twitter or wherever you're sending that message, Facebook keeps a copy of that message. It's not actually a private space. We don't keep any of the data from our users, but we do use platforms and those platforms do control that data. We have done a lot of experimentation with voice and 
we have a lot of stuff in the can. A lot of it is transferable. We are waiting to put it out in the world, primarily because we think that these devices are not habit building yet. We're not really seeing people use them in a habitual way when it comes to the more interactive experiences. Just so that we're sure that we have an active audience. Okay. It doesn't make sense for us to spend editorial resources producing an interactive news show every week if we have five people using it. We're really waiting for, I think, the numbers to pick up there. And I think part of that is because of where these devices are. They're, they're stagnant, right? They're just like sitting on the kitchen counter. And when you're using the device, you're usually doing other things. And so you have a quick question, you get an answer, you move on. I think as we start to see voice move into our earbuds, into our cars, once we see them traveling with us in, in spaces where we really do want to be eyes and hands free, that's where I think we'll see the habit pick up. And that's where I think you'll see the number then start to be available. This is all for this week's podcast. Thank you, Emily Wifrow, for chatting to us. And I see you next time. Mm-hmm.